We are in part two of our Building God's Way series, walking through the book of Nehemiah, and I entitled today's message, Worth Fighting For. Worth Fighting For. We continue our story of a Jewish man who lived hundreds of miles away, and he hears that Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of his people, even though he didn't grow up there, is in shambles. The walls are torn down, the gates are burned, and he has this holy agitation in his heart that breaks and it begins to say, I've got to do something. I'm not the right guy. I get it. I mean, I'm not a mason. I'm not a carpenter. I'm not a city planner. I'm not an architect. And yet I know that if anyone's going to do something, we've got to do it now. I'm tired of everything being so torn apart and we're made fun of in all, by all the other nations. And that holy agitation grew and it grew and it grew. And he finally went to the king and he said, I need permission to take a leave of absence. I want to go back and rebuild my city. He ended up grabbing a crew to go on out there. They set up shop. They examined and surveyed the work. He gets them all motivated with a vision and they start to do the building. That is where we're going to pick up uh, our story today. Just know this, everyone was on board that was going to build with him, but rebuilding Jerusalem was a dangerous work. I don't know how much you remember about last time we were together. If you haven't got a chance to listen to that message, just go back online. It's free and available for you to kind of catch up on how we got here, but just know this, there was a good reason why Jerusalem was destroyed. I mean, there's a reason why you got to rebuild it. And it was because they had rebelled so much, the people that owned them crushed them, sieged them, and destroyed the city. They were known as a problem people for those that were in power. So the very idea that they were going to rebuild it was not okay with basically anyone else but the Jews, right? I mean, the, you have to understand that to everyone else, they were a problem. And now Nehemiah wanted to restart it. As if doing an impossible task was not enough, he received threats from the outside and inside turmoil. This was absolutely impossible. So why did Nehemiah keep going? I mean, it's one thing to kind of get an idea in your heart and an agitation in your spirit, and you're ready to go. And at home, like when you're laying in bed, you can dream of all the cool stuff that you're gonna do, right? And then all of a sudden real life hits, you go out, you see the monstrosity of the work before you, and you just cave, and you're like, you know what, forget it, I bit off more than I can chew, I can't do this. Why did Nehemiah keep pressing? Why did he push through? That's the fill in the blank on the app if you have that. If not, just go ahead and jot this down in your notes. You ready? No great work remains unopposed. No great work remains unopposed. You may even start out good. You may even start out where a bunch of people seem to be allies of yours. But over time, there's going to be opposition. And I want to share with you why I believe that is. We're going to study this story, but I just want to share a point of wisdom for you, right? Maybe you write down this concept, however you want to write it down. You don't have to write it down word for word. Right? Unless you're watching online, you're able to rewind. That's cool. 
right? Things are the way they are because someone is benefiting from it either directly or indirectly. Things are not just happening for no reason. I'm going to say that again. Things are the way they are because someone is benefiting from it either directly or indirectly. Otherwise, it would be different. Why does that matter? Because any proposed change threatens the status quo. You guys tracking with me? If someone's benefiting from it and you want to adjust it, it's going to mess up their world and they're going to get in your face about it. That's why all great work must be opposed. Otherwise, if it was easy and it would have been done a long time ago. Let's make this personal. The very reason that you want to become more like Jesus Christ is a great work. You want your family to be healthy and whole. You want your connection between your spirit and the spirit perfectly cleaned up. You want to make sure that you're living for the Lord and that you are honoring the Lord's name. Do you not? That is a noble work. But I got to tell you right now, there are forces in play that are benefiting from you just kicking it on the couch. And they are not cool with you getting fired up. There is a reason why things are the way they are. Someone is benefiting from that, either directly or indirectly, and any change that you suggest is going to challenge that status quo. It will be resisted. I've spent my entire ministry in leadership. From the, I would say, from the age of 15, 16 on, my entire life has been in leadership. All I've had to do was lead change. And all I've seen is resistance. If it was easy, you wouldn't need a leader to do it. Uh, when you change the course of your life to pursue the Lord, it sends an alarm to the three enemies of the Christian. Who are the three enemies of the Christian? The world, the flesh, and the devil. What did I not say? Your neighbor? People are not the problem. The world, the flesh, the devil, those are the only enemies of a believer. It is not other people. We need to be very clear about that. Because as we move forward, there's going to be resistance, and we need to understand where the resistance is coming from. For us to try to spiritually grow, there is a resistance, but it's rarely an inability to grasp the subject matter. I don't think that most of us are going, man, I don't know how to grow because when someone explains it to me, I simply cannot grasp it. That is not the problem. It is rarely a lack of resources. Man, I would love to grow, but no one will help me out anywhere. That's not the problem. And it's rarely a lack of wanting a better spiritual life. I think people want to honor God. So what's the problem? Why is it so hard? Opposition. Inside us, outside of us. That's the problem. If we're going to build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it. 
I'm gonna say that throughout the entire message over and over and over again. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it. If you avoid conflict, if you avoid difficult conversations, if you avoid opposition, you will not end up building God's way. You work through opposition, you don't live around it. That's just not how it goes, amen? Amen. All right. Well, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah's in the Old Testament, so you're going to drop your Bible open in the middle there. Go to the left, right? Kind of zoom around until you, till you find that here. You're probably going to be in, let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Every time I drop my Bible open in the middle, I end up in Proverbs. I'm not sure why that is, but that's okay. Uh, I don't know where you landed, but keep searching there. If you need the table of contents, it's in the front, all right? Nehemiah chapter 3. I just want you to look at it real quick. Look at Nehemiah chapter 3 for a moment. That's something I would like you to read to your kids in the evening. Oh, wait, no. It's just a list of names. It could not look more boring, right? You're like, seriously, and this guy worked, and this guy worked, and this guy worked, right? Okay, lists are really important to the Jewish people. Why? Actually, it's important for a couple reasons. Number one, to record history. Number two, to give proper credit. And number three, to retell the story right. So they want to record that stuff. Remember, we're looking at an ancient document. They had a bunch of reasons why they recorded what they recorded. And we kind of go through and we're like, man, I need a devotional for today. Lord, it is Tuesday. What do you have for me? And we drop it open to Nehemiah 3. And we're like, are you kidding me? Clearly, the scripture diving isn't working, right? It's like a magic eight ball. Try to look at it again, right? All right. Not the best way to read the Bible, by the way. Uh, There's four things I would like to note as we move past. I'm not going to make you read chapter three, but I need you to highlight a couple pieces. Four key things that you would have missed if you didn't read it. Number one, the big dogs went to work. The big dogs went to work. In that list, the first name on that list is who? the high priest. Okay, I don't know how much you know about religious systems, but in general, there's no way the high priest is going to do manual labor. But he did. There was only one high priest at a time of all of Israel. You had many priests, but you only had one high priest. So you had the high priest, then you had the priest, then you had all the temple workers. Their whole job was to work at the temple. Their job wasn't to do anything else, and yet they're on the list over and over and over. The Levites work too. It's the high priest, it's the Levites, and then name after name after name says the ruler of this, and the ruler of this, and the ruler of this, and the ruler of this. Now those are all little tiny household heads and little baby kingdom ideas, but the leaders were involved. That's what's so great about this list. All the big dogs jumped in, except... One. Take a look at verse five, if you want to just scan there real quick. It says this, the Tekoite nobles, their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Man, the Bible's like the best-selling book of all time. Imagine that was your only line in the whole Bible. It says your people were willing to work, but you as a rich person would not. I am not going to stoop down to serve my Lord. Okay, what does this mean to me? 
This might be real personal to some of us, but I'll say it anyway. When we start thinking we're too important to do ministry or that our personal projects are more important than God's projects, we have ceased to be useful to the kingdom of God. We've lost our way. Here's what's intriguing to me. There are some of you that in the business world, you're it. Your light's out. You're brilliant. Everybody respects you, but you won't use that gift around the church. It's below you. Is it that our organization isn't large enough? Is it that it's not worth getting your hands dirty? I would suggest to you that the church of Jesus Christ would be so much more powerful if those that were a part of it use their gifting for the kingdom of God. I'm not telling you to leave your job. I'm telling you to get involved. I'm telling you that if you are a financial guru in the world's eyes, do you think that the church does not need proper stewardship and your brilliance? Yeah, well, I don't really get involved in that kind of stuff. Why is that? Why did God give it to you? Hmm. Careful with that. Look at verse 12. What does it say? And he worked with his daughters. This is very, very important. You got to remember that this is a very patriarchal society, and you don't write down what the ladies do unless it's significant. This was a boy's job. This is, now don't get me wrong, women worked hard with their hands, but they never got credit for it. And they certainly weren't part of the building project. That was all dudes. But I'll tell you this, large important projects need everyone on board. And here come the ladies to step in. And everyone finally backed off with the whole hierarchy principle and said, you're right. We need you working right alongside of us if we're ever going to get this done. How desperate does it have to be in the family of God to get women and men to work alongside each other? Hmm. Last thing that I'll note is they all built together side by side. Why is that important? Because no massive kingdom building project will be done by one man or one woman. It will not be done by one church on one side of town. It will require the unity of the churches of King Jesus to drop their agendas and partner together to build what God really wants, and that is the kingdom-rich region. Amen? Amen? Amen. We would have missed that if we skipped chapter three, but let's move on. Chapter four, verse one, let's get into the more exciting part of the story, yeah? Here we go. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, that's the bad guy, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? What, are they going to restore it for themselves? Oh, are they going to sacrifice now? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, that's his right-hand man, was beside him and he said, yeah, what they're building, if a fox even goes up on it, it'll break down the stone wall. These are, these are just insults. Sanballat and Tobiah are just bullies. 
right? I mean, isn't that what they're doing? Man, this whole thing is useless. I can't believe they're doing that. It's never going to last. You'll just knock it over. Look how flimsy it is. Look how fragile it is. They're not doing anything that matters. Quick question for you. Do words matter? Yeah, they do. Words create realities. Of course they matter. That's why the enemy uses them. Here's the problem. We get critique. And I'll tell you this, every great leader that has ever walked the planet, including Jesus Christ himself, received critique. There is no great leader that has ever not received critique. And I was, I was at a, uh, I was part of the Thrive Business Leaders Summit the other day. Remember I was telling you a little bit about us partnering along with Bayside and, and doing the small business owners and helping them out and all that? Well, I was doing a workshop for them, and so I was watching uh, the, the program of that. And Ray Johnson, the senior pastor of Bayside Granite Bay, he comes out and he was talking about different things and he throws down this quote I had never heard before. Now I found out from a ton of my other leaders, it's a really, really popular quote and he was just grabbing it. But it really hit me in the chest. Here's what he said. Don't ever receive criticism from people you wouldn't seek wisdom from. If they're not smart enough for you to seek their wisdom, then they're not smart enough to bring wise critique to you. Does that make sense? And I was like, dang, that's good. Wow. Very, very impressive. So here's the problem with criticism. It triggers our insecurities. I don't know anyone that doesn't, that doesn't legitimately internally fear that they're doing the wrong thing or they're going to do it wrong. Like, a lot of people will never show it to you. They're super cocky on the outside, and they always seem like they have everything put together. But internally, they're squirming. And a lot of times, people that are extra arrogant tend to be overcompensating a bit for their insecurity, right? But, but here's what's intriguing. When criticism comes in, one of the scariest things about it is it starts triggering what we already doubt about ourselves. Have you noticed that? Like, you're already going, I mean, can you imagine Nehemiah? He's probably already said 1,000 times, I'm not the right guy. And then crit criticism comes in and goes, you're not the right guy. He's like, I know, I've been saying that the whole time. And God's not listening to me. And then, you're looking at all the threats, things are going to start amping up, and you're going to go, this isn't worth it. And then the enemy comes in and goes, this isn't worth it. When we validate the criticisms of others, that's what gives it power. And that's what starts sinking us. And that's what's so scary, because when the enemy knows our insecurities, they can play off them, right? So they can just start pinging and hitting that same note over and over and over. That's what these bullies are doing. And make no mistake, that's all they are. They're bullies. Okay, here's another bit of wisdom for you. Bullies are bullies because they have to be. Now, I'll explain this, but I want, you to, I want you to remember this. Bullies are bullies because they have to be. Here's why. If they had true power, they would get what they wanted by force, and they can't. That's why they're bullies. Does that make sense? 
Because if they, if they already really had all the power and all the authority, they just kind of mow everybody over and they do whatever they want. That's not a bully. That's just someone that's crushing other people. Bullies are bullies because they have to be. They don't have the power, so they have to create the power. You tracking with me? They don't have control, so they have to exert control. They primarily work off intimidation. This is very, very important for you to know. They primarily work off intimidation. In other words, they need to get you to believe that they have more power and control than they really have. Bullies are mind manipulators. Does that have anything to do with your personal life? Oh yeah. Bullies desperately need you to buy into their fake story that they're selling, because if you don't, it all falls apart. I'm gonna use a, a little bit of a highfalutin analogy and, and just hope you guys can track with me here. It's a little, little academic. In 1998, there was a Pixar movie called Bugs Life. Anybody, anybody ever watch Bugs Life? Yeah, come on now. Bugs Life. It's a little teeny ant. And this little teeny ant on this cartoon movie, he is, is kind of like a little awkward misfit guy. And every year, the big bad grasshoppers, they come in and they make the ants pick food for them, and then it's all ready for the grasshoppers. The grasshoppers are like a motorcycle club that come in, right? <laughs> Hopper's the main bad guy, right? Very original. All right, so he's coming in, he's, he's saying, oh, you guys gotta get us all this stuff, and they do it every year. Well, then the little guy, Flick, the little ant, one time, they have the whole big pile of food ready for their offering, and he accidentally knocks it over, and it all falls into the river. And all the ants are like, oh my gosh. And the grasshopper said, you, got, you have to do it all over again, and you only have a short amount of time. And the ants all hate this guy, right, because he just blew everything. So he decides he's gonna go on a mission to go find some warrior bugs to defend them. I told you guys, this is academic. A little high, I don't know, are you guys, some of you guys, I'm not sure you're following here. Okay. <laughs> well, ultimately, in the end, spoiler alert, it was 1998, you guys. If you haven't seen it by now, you're never gonna see it. In the end, uh, he comes back and they realize he tries to do this whole thing where he's trying to manipulate the bad guy and everything falls apart. And it all comes down to this. The bad guy is like, I will crush you. And he said, you know what? You can probably crush me, but you can't get us all. And all of a sudden, all the ants begin to get the idea that, wait a second, he's a bully. He can't get us all. We outnumber him 100 to 1 and they all start rising up in a rebellion. Now, listen, I know that's not biblical, right? But it is really helpful, right? Here's why it matters. The devil doesn't have the power you think he has. And he's a bully. And the only way it's gonna work is if you buy into it. Because the minute you figure out what Jesus Christ really did on the cross, his stuff starts to fall apart. Amen. The Christian only has three enemies. 
the world, the flesh, the devil. The world are secular systems that are designed without God in mind, and therefore, therefore they're harmful to Christianity. Things like materialism, humanism, autonomy, Darwinian evolution, false religions, and it goes on. That's the world. The flesh is all the parts of us inside that don't want to follow God or do what's right. Okay, that's stuff like selfishness, greed, lust, envy, stuff like that. And then the devil is a personal, evil, supernatural individual who leads a group of supernatural, evil individuals that are contrary to God, and they are leading a rebellion against God, and they know they can't take him anymore, so they want to hurt and distort what he loves. That's his creation. That's us. Spiritual warfare is a fancy term for any resistance or opposition that we cannot see. If it has a supernatural origin, it's spiritual warfare. I don't care if it comes from world, flesh, or devil, it's spiritual warfare. So, let me give you some practical examples on what spiritual warfare might be for you. Ready? You're trying to grow as a Christian and you feel like quitting. When you feel like quitting, you can either be just emotionally tired or an enemy might be whispering in your ear. When you're anxious or depressed, it could be that your chemical levels are off. Or it could be that a bully is picking on you while you're weak. When you doubt, it could be that you're having trouble putting some pieces of logic together. Or it could be a supernatural being telling you lies. All I'm telling you is that the oppositions that we have, sometimes they're natural and sometimes they're supernatural. Sometimes they're just normal and sometimes it's spiritual warfare. I just need you and I to discern on how to fight. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it. Pick it up in verse four. Nehemiah is about to pray about the taunting and the threats. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Here's what's so cool about that. When Nehemiah got threatened, he prayed about it and kept working. Why is that so cool? Because what did the enemy want him to do? Stop working. So what's the one thing he couldn't do? Stop working. But if you can't stop working and cave into the bully, what are you supposed to do? You have to fight back. But how do you fight back spiritually? How do you fight back as a Christian? You pray. Ah. Our primary defense is prayer. Prayer is talking to God, right? Getting him involved in the situation. We need to learn how to pray defensively. You know what praying defensively means? It means pray against the root cause. Stop just attacking all the surface stuff. And you're like, well, hold on. Nehemiah did. I mean, he was attacking the people. He's like, God, jack those people up. I mean, he was just, he didn't, he was just like, throw it on their heads, make their lives miserable. I mean, and here's my point. 
It is true that he did that. However, we are now thousands of years forward. We've learned an awful lot about spiritual warfare that he didn't know. We now know more about the schemes of the enemy, and now we realize that there are spirits behind a whole bunch of stuff. We realize that people are simply pawns, and they're not actually our problem, so we can pray differently. See, we pray differently. We pray aggressively, but we pray defensively. What that means is, let's start firing at the stuff that's really causing the problem. And who is that? The world, the flesh, the devil. That's where our prayers need to go to. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it. Pick it up in verse six. I love this line. So we built the wall. That was it. Like, nothing flashy, so we built the wall. Yeah, what no one else has ever been able to do since it got torn down. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. Now, is that still a a significant outcome? Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, you know, it's still soft and everything's still drying, and right? So it's not like perfectly ready to keep enemies out, but no one else has done this. So they're going to celebrate in the middle of it. Why? Look at this next line. It says, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together in half its height. Why? For the people had a mind to work. We'll talk about that. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were angry and they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as protection against them day and night. What does that mean? Well, pretty simple. The enemy list is growing bigger. First, it was just two guys, two groups, and all of a sudden, we start adding in there another group, and then we added another group, and everybody's starting to get intense, and it says that they're now shifting it over to a real threat. They're going to come in and attack, but they got the wall done, at least half the height. Why? Because the people had in mind to what? To work. Why did they get it accomplished? Last week I gave you one point, this week I give you the other point. What are the two reasons why the wall got finished? Number one, anointing. Number two, hard work. Number one, anointing. Number two, hard work. The seriousness of any threat, and don't get me wrong, the threat was real. They are going to come in and kill them. Nehemiah is in danger. But the seriousness of the threat is tempered by the size of the bodyguard. The seriousness of the threat is tempered by the size of the bodyguard. Is four or five groups of bad guys against a group of building Jews good odds? No, it is not. If we're going to look from an earthly point of view, you're going to die. Those are terrible odds. But Nehemiah didn't quit the job. Why? Is it because he's stupid? No. It's because he was looking at a bigger picture. Those are not the odds. The odds were bad guys against the almighty God. That flipped the odds, and therefore he didn't stop the work. You tracking with me? 
The full picture was that God was on the size of the Jews. And that changed everything. Quick question for you to make it more personal. Is a supernatural being that is the highest creation of God, Lucifer, Satan, and a band of demons versus a Christian, is that a fair fight? Nope. And if those were the odds, we would get creamed. But the threat is what? Tempered by the size of the bodyguard. If that's such an unfair, scary fight, why aren't we giving up? Because we know those aren't the odds. What are the odds? Jesus Christ is king of all, and all authority bows to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? So, are we really in danger? No. If you don't really have power, what do you have to become? A bully. What do you think Satan's doing every day? Hmm. We have God on our side, and that changes everything. First John says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Do you know why that is? Because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. In Matthew, Jesus told this interesting story. He walks into this place, and there's a demon-possessed guy there, so he casts the demon out. And all the religious leaders are like, see, I told you. He's like, told me what? They're like, he casts out demons by the power of demons. He's like, first of all, that's stupid. You can't have a kingdom divided against itself. You can't have Satan casting out Satan. Otherwise, what is the point here? He's like, and if it's not Satan, who do you think it is? If the finger of God is casting demons out through my ministry, then you and I have a problem. Is it not this how you do it? That you first bind a strong man so you can plunder his house. Nobody's gonna go in and try to start taking other people's stuff until they take care of the threat. Guess what I did? I'm here as the rightful king. I've already shut down and bound the strong man, and so I get to go where I want to go and do whatever I want to do on this planet. If a demon gets in my way, he's going to go bye-bye. Why? Because I'm in charge. You see, when Christians start realizing that, they start understanding that when you're a Christ follower and you're a Christian and a child of God, that you receive authority and power because of what he's done. And that really makes being a bully really hard. He's getting way too much victory, y'all, because we're buying into his lie. So they prayed and set a guard. What a beautiful example of how we ought to live. Prayed and set a guard. See, he lived into the beautiful and. I understand that's not popular in today's world. Everything's or. You're either on this side or you're on this side. Either you do this or you do this. Either you love these people or you love these people. Either you support this cause or you support that cause. I've never seen such foolishness in my entire life. Believe in the and. The and is this. 
Man, how should we, re- how should we deal with this threat? And, and, uh, should we- okay, one group runs over and says, we wall ourselves off in fear. And the other side says, no, 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 you just let anything happen and trust God. And God's like, hold up. I gave you my protection and I gave you a brain. I would like you to use both if that's okay, right? The power of the and. Well, if they would have trusted God more, then they would have never set a guard. Okay, unless it was God's will that they set a guard. Oh, well, you know what? Uh, that, you know, it, we slide to either polar opposite, right? Either we're saying it's all on us or it's all on God, and he goes, can't we just partner? Hmm. If we're going to build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it, yeah? Pick it up in verse 10. In Judah, that's Jewish territory, it was said the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That means internally, everyone's doubting him. And our enemies said, they won't even know or see it until we're among them and then we're gonna kill them and we're gonna stop the work. And at the same time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you guys have got to get out of there. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. What does that mean? It means Nehemiah realized I'm getting attacks everywhere. My own people don't believe we should do this and they want us to run. These guys don't think that we're ever gonna have the strength to finish it. And these guys are plotting a sneak attack to kill us. All right, guys, everybody huddle up. This is ridiculous. Right now, we're gonna pause our work and we're going into defense mode. And they all lock down into warrior pose all along the wall. Now, what is so important about this is, in my opinion, the inside attacks. Remember, it is not the outside water that sinks a ship, it's the water on the inside that sinks the ship, right? To be honest with you, if we fought together as a family, I would fear nothing in ministry. All the reasons I've ever wanted to quit ministry were because of what happened inside our house. It's never the water on the outside, man. We were built to be strong. It's the internal turmoil that'll get me, right? But here's what's interesting to me. I bet those people that said that stuff meant well. I bet the people that said that stuff are probably pretty smart. Because if you look at it, it, it doesn't look good. You've got a sneak attack coming. You're not a warrior clan, so you're going to get killed. So they're smart and they're well-intentioned. Shouldn't Nehemiah have listened to them? Here's the problem. Even smart, well-intentioned, loving people aren't always hearing God's voice or seeing God's plan. You listen to their counsel, but then you filter what you hear. You must always filter it through what the Lord is speaking to you. Just because they're well-intentioned and nice and loving doesn't mean they're right. Hmm. The attack's serious. 
it's bad, he sets up a stronger defense, and sometimes you pause the work, get into defense mode, and then you're ready to restart it again. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to work through opposition no matter where it comes from and not around it. Pick it up in verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, the sneak attack, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. That's called a brave heart moment. Puts on face paint. And he comes out and he starts yelling, we fight for our children, you know, and in all this, our land, you know, he starts screaming. Here's the deal. He rallies everybody and says, there's a reason for our confidence. Our God is on our side and he can defend anything. And number two, we're doing a great work here that blesses our families. So gentlemen, ladies, rise up and fight. And when the enemy went, oh shoot, now they're ready to fight us. If they really had the power, they would have mowed them over. I'm gonna tell you, those other places are not nations, they were splinter groups. They didn't have the power to take it over. It was sneak attack or nothing. And once the sneak attack got thrown, they had no play and they went home. Do you understand that the Bible says that we should not be unaware of the devil's schemes? Do you understand that for his children, for Christians, God highlights where the traps are. We should rarely ever walk into a trap of the enemy. First of all, he doesn't need to come up with new ones. All the old ones tend to work pretty well, right? And so what the Holy Spirit does is highlight the pits for those that are listening. We don't need to be caught off guard. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to work through opposition, not around it. Let's finish it out in verse 16. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from each other. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. How do we work when we're under opposition? Work, pray, and carry a big stick. That's our job. If you believe that if you were doing it right, you wouldn't have opposition, you miss something. God, I don't understand why this is so hard. Am I not in your will? Have you ever asked that question? Because I ask it about every Wednesday. 
But God, if I was doing it right, if I'm really your kid, if, I, if you love me, why wouldn't you just flatten the enemies? Why is there still opposition? Because opposition still serves a purpose. The minute it doesn't, it's done. Spiritual building requires three things. Advancement, alertness, and armor. Advancement, alertness, and armor. What do I mean? Advancement, you gotta keep going forward. You may pause when you're under extreme attack, but then you get back to work. Advancement. Most Christians I know peter out. And they don't keep pressing forward. Somehow you start to look at the people around you and judging how far you've come by your neighbor when that's not your bar. Your bar is Jesus Christ. So you and I have a long way to go. The minute you get better than me, please don't celebrate. It's not that big of a deal. You got a long way to go. Alertness. Listen for the Lord and listen to the Holy Spirit. Be alert, don't be paranoid. That's the way of the Christian. Be alert, but don't be paranoid. And then finally, we have armor. The armor of God in Ephesians chapter six also gives us a sword and the prayer. The sword of the spirit of the word of God to cut down the lies of the enemy and prayers to drop bombs on the enemies around us. We have everything we need for victory. Please don't buy into the bully's lies that he's got one over on you. If you don't buy into it, it doesn't work. Here's what we're gonna do as we finish up. If you feel right now, we're just gonna close out with prayer and then we'll have our prayer team come up here in a moment. If you just want extra protection to help you push through a difficult season or time, would you just stand? I'm just gonna pray for you and we're gonna get out of here. If you would like extra prayer or protection and power and you're just going through a tough time or it's just been a hard season for you, just stand up. We're just gonna pray power into you, okay? And then we'll get out of here. All right. Holy Spirit, in this beautiful holy moment, we ask that you would empower those that are standing. Because Lord, what they're doing is they're calling out to you and saying, God, would you be my defender and my strength? Would you be the one that carries me when I'm weak? Would you be my fortress in times of trouble? That God, I just pray that not only would we have a change of mind to know that we are built for victory. Not only that, but Lord, that we would have an encouragement inside our bodies that is like an energy to keep going, where we would walk and not grow weary, and we would run and not faint. Lord, I pray that you would just breathe life and power into my friends here, standing up, saying, I'm struggling right now. God, would you give them breakthrough? Would you give them defense? Would you allow the angels to come and minister to them? Would you allow them to feel like they're being escorted to home and away 
from home, in their rooms, outside of their rooms, wherever they go. Lord, I pray a shielding over their families. I pray a shielding over their houses. I pray, Lord, a shielding over their minds and hearts that the peace that passes all understanding would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I pray all of this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior. Amen.